Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and the title of this week's episode is Finding Dark Matter is as elusive as finding Vera Rubin's missing Nobel Prize. Today is Wednesday, 14 September 2016. Each session we'll have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brendan. What have you got for us this week, Nadezhda? Oh, it's so boring, Brendan. Another woman who was cheated out of a Nobel Prize. Okay, tell us all about it, Nadezhda. This is a very familiar theme. Sadly, you are correct. So who are we talking about, Nadezhda? Today we are talking about Vera Rubin. Vera Cooper Rubin changed our fundamental view of the cosmos from a universe dominated by starlight to one dominated by dark matter. It turns out that roughly 68% of the universe is dark energy and dark matter makes up about 27%. The rest, you, me, everything on earth, everything ever observed with all of our instruments, all normal matter, what we call baryonic matter, adds up to less than 5% of the universe. You see, galaxies in our universe seem to be achieving an impossible feat. They are rotating with such speed that the gravity generated by their observable matter could not possibly hold them together. They should have torn themselves apart long ago. And the same is true of galaxies in clusters, which leads scientists to believe that something we cannot see is at the work. They think something we have yet to detect directly is giving these galaxies extra mass, generating the extra gravity required to stay together, to stay intact. This strange and unknown matter is called dark matter, since it is not visible. Now, Rubin, she was born in 1928 in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. She was the youngest of two daughters. Her father, Philip Cooper, was an electrical engineer and his wife was Rose. And the father, Philip, encouraged his daughter's interest in astronomy at about age 10, taking her to amateur astronomy meetings after the family moved to Washington and assisting her make her first homemade telescope when she was 14. Now, Vera discovered early that women science students were not accepted at some universities. Her early experiences shaped her later work when she worked to get better women's equality in all the sciences and especially in astronomy. She got her BA in 1948 
and a master's from Cornell University in 1951, where she met and married Robert Rubin, who was a graduate student in chemistry. Her master's thesis in astronomy was controversial and a sign of things to come when she went on to do her PhD. Rubin's doctoral work was conducted at Georgetown University, supervised by Georgi Antonovich Gemov. As an aside, you might be interested to know, Brendan, that Gamov and his physicist wife, Lubov, they defected from the Soviet Union in 1933 with the help of Marie Curie and other French physicists. Then Gamov moved to the USA and later obviously met up with Rubin as his student. Back to Vera. Vera Rubin's thesis in 1954 was one of the earliest works on the clustering of galaxies. She concluded that galaxies were not randomly distributed across the sky, but instead there was a definite clumping of them. Her results were not followed up by the scientific community as a subject of large-scale structure was not studied seriously until the late 1970s when better technologies were developed like the 4-meter Victor Blanco telescope in Chile. Back to 1955 to 1965, over this 10-year period, Rubin rose from a research associate to assistant professor at Georgetown University. And then in the early 1960s, up until 1964, she focused on studying the rotation of galaxies. Then in 1965, Rubin joined the staff of the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism of the famous Carnegie Institution of Washington, where she is still there today. It was during this year that Rubin became the first woman to observe legally at Mount Palomar Observatory under her own name as a guest investigator. To say that the male astronomers at Mount Wilson and Mount Palomar went out of their way to exclude women from using these instruments is an understatement. Then, in the 1970s, Rubin did her groundbreaking work on the rotational curves of spiral galaxies using newer technologies. She found that spiral galaxies have flat rotational curves. She determined the velocities as a function of distance from the galactic center of clouds of ionized hydrogen. In astrophysics, we call this H2 regions. This was done by measurement of the Doppler shift of the H-alpha emission lines. We talked about the H1 lines last week. These visible hydrogen clouds move with the stars and other visible matter in the galaxies. And Rubin found that the velocities of the clouds did not decrease with the increasing distance from the galactic center. This is counterintuitive. And in some cases, the velocity even increased a little. You see, unlike our solar system where the majority of matter is contained in the sun, our planets follow Kepler's rules of planetary motion, with Mercury 
having a much faster orbital velocity than Pluto. Rubin discovered that the visible matter in spiral galaxies has a high orbital velocity right out to the visible edge, and this can only be explained if most of the galaxy's mass is not clumped at the center, where the visible bulge of the galaxy is. But if there is an invisible halo of dark matter extending at least to the visible edge, if not further. So, Vera Rubin and her team provided the first direct evidence for the existence of dark matter, verifying some earlier theoretical work of Jeremy Ostricker and James Peebles. Since 1978, Rubin has analyzed the spectra of over 200 galaxies and found that nearly all contain much dark matter, copious amounts of dark matter. So chasing down and identifying this dark matter has been a constant, but to this day, a fruitless obsession for astrophysicists. In an earlier episode, we reported how the famous Lux experiment failed in its two-year search for dark matter, and how a team from your Melbourne University is now building a dark matter detector deep in a gold mine somewhere out in the country. Yes, that's at Stall in Victoria, about 250 kilometres from Melbourne. Very good. Thank you. Now... Rubin. Apart from her own brilliant doctorate, Rubin holds many honorary doctorates. She has been a Presidential National Medal of Science winner. She has won many prestigious prizes for science and astronomy. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences. She has been editor of many top journals and published many astronomical papers that are extensively cited. She published Bright Galaxies, Dark Matter, a book designed to better educate the general public about astrophysics and dark matter. Remembering what it was like to be a lone woman staring at galaxies, Vera Rubin continues to be a shining icon and inspiration to whole generations of women astronomers. So, the dark matter itself has not been identified and we still have no clue as to what dark matter is. And that uncertainty may be why Rubin's discovery hasn't been rewarded by the Nobel Committee. Yet those bozos gave the 2011 physics prize to another puzzling cosmological discovery, the accelerating expansion of the universe. Your Dr. Brian Schmidt in Australia seems to be a delightful fellow when I met him, but I'm sure he is also a bit puzzled why he got a Nobel for discovering an unexplained phenomena, and yet the Rubin's discovery of dark matter, also as yet unexplained, has deliberately been excluded from the Nobel Prize list. You might want to edit this out, Brennan, but it makes me so mad sometimes that I think I should give up my title of being the only woman in Russia who does not drink vodka. Goodbye, Brennan. This Vidanya. Maybe talk next week, or I may need to take a holiday. Dobronochi. Good night. Paka, Nadezhda. Paka, Brennan. See ya. See ya, Nadezhda. Thank you very much.
And now we cross over to Adelaide in Australia to talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave from Astroblogger. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Pleasure to be here as always. Can you give us a summary of what happened in uni this week, Ian? Well, actually, I'm going to talk about something slightly different. I'm going to talk about the hashtag write your paper as a Harry Potter novel. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, this, this was actually you brought to my attention by you, and my Harry Potter novel title was Harry Potter and the Herbal Medicines of Doom. Yep. This relates to what we've been doing in our lab. Back over the past couple of days, we've been killing liver cells with isolated extracts of various herbal medicines. <laughs> uh, in the past few days, we've been trying to work out what concentrations of astragalicide we should be using to not actually kill cells. Yep. About a month ago, there was a big fluff of where a talk radio personality uh, decided that we shouldn't be spending money on research projects that couldn't be explained in a pub, and the Minister of Treasury more or less agreed with him. Yep. Now, there was a lot of consternation about. On the flip side, the tweet your manuscript as a Harry Potter novel. As scientists, we want to communicate our research to the general public. So my research is about toxicity of herbal medicines, and Harry Potter and the herbal medicines of doom is a good one, as is uh, Harry Potter and the astragalicide of disaster. <laughs> but we want to get across to the general public what we do. Yep. But that's very different from applying for grants. Applying for grants, we're applying to experts in the field to say why we need a bucket of money for three years, possibly to employ research laboratories personnel and research students to do very intensive laboratory research work in tissue culture or probably possibly in animals or even in human beings. And that doesn't lend itself to a title you could tweet out as a Harry Potter novel. Yep. You're talking to advanced specialists. And again, if you can explain your entire research project to someone in the pub in three minutes, your research project is not detailed enough. It will take more than a couple of minutes in the pub to explain to people what quadrupole mass spectrometry is and why we want to apply it to herbal medicines. Yep. So on one hand, things like tweet your research as a Harry Potter novel is important for connecting with people about what we do as researchers. But on the other hand, when you're justifying your research, you can't say tweet it as a Harry Potter novel to someone in the pub you shouldn't be getting funding for it. It completely misses what you're doing in a funding application. Exactly, Ian. Now, our next segment is What's Up, Doc? And can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Well, what's not up in the sky this week is Jupiter. Yep. This week, we lose our companion of the past few months, Jupiter. Mercury, as I said in the last podcast, is already gone. This week, Jupiter this has disappeared into the globe. It will come up towards the end of next month in the morning sky, but now it's gone. So the, the triplet, which has been our companions for most of August and September, it's now just Venus. Yep. But Venus is still going to delight us. It's continuing to rise into the evening sky. Above Venus is a, a brightish star. It doesn't look too bright because of the twilight, but that is Beta, Beta Virginis, the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo, the Virgin. And you may have noticed that it's been coming closer and closer. This week, 
it's going to be coming closer still. And by the 19th, Venus and Speaker will be side by side at their closest. You can see it later and later in the night. Now you can actually see it past astronomical twilight. Civil twilight, which is about half an hour after sunset, where the sky is quite bright. Nautical twilight, approximately an hour after sunset, where the sky is relatively dark and you can see quite a few stars. It's still sort of this deep purplish colour, but, but not completely dark. And astronomical twilight, when the sky is completely dark. So now you can see Venus above the horizon at astronomical twilight. It's not very high above the horizon, but you'll be able to see Venus blazing very brightly right next to the bright star speaker. So it'll look quite quite nice. Of course, now that Venus is getting brighter and brighter and visible later and later, be prepared for the inevitable sightings of Venus as an aircraft, <laughs> a flare, a UFO and things like that. Yeah, definitely aliens, Ian. Well, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it was aliens. If you look further up, three stars that form the head of the Scorpion, Scorpius. Above that, you'll see the red star Antares. Off to the right of Antares is the yellowish object, which is actually Saturn which will look very nice in a small telescope. In fact, at the moment, Saturn is, is approximately 90 degrees from the sun. At the moment the sun sets, Saturn is at its highest above the horizon. And by the time the sky is fully dark, Saturn is relatively low. Fortunately for us in the Southern Hemisphere, Saturn is nicely high and still quite good for observation. In the Northern Hemisphere, Saturn is uncomfortably low above the horizon and not such a good telescopic target. Ian, we know we've got some astrophotographers listen. I notice that you've been combining your point-and-shoot camera with your telescope. Can you describe how you do this? Yeah, it's really very simple. For about $50 or so, you can go into an astronomical shop and buy a little adapter, which you screw onto your telescope's objective. Then you slide your camera up towards the eyepiece. It's Best to practice on the moon because this is really fiddly. Once okay. you've got it set up on the moon and everything tightened up so it's exactly right, then you can start shooting things like Mars and Saturn and Jupiter. So set it all up on the moon. On your point-and-shoot cameras, you need to have an infinity mode. If you don't have an infinity mode, your autofocus will try an autofocus and it will make a mess of everything. You also need to have a timer mode. So I set mine for 10 seconds because I find that the vibration of, of my telescope on my mount takes a bit longer than, than two seconds to set down. Yep. Uh, if you've got a remote system setting your camera off, use that. The other thing to do is to start ASA setting that doesn't have too much noise is 400 ASA. If you're going to be shooting planets or stars, you definitely need guiding because you'll need to have exposures longer than one second and you'll see definite smearing and drift yep. for exposures as longer than one second. Point and shoot set up on the four inch. I can just pick it up, move it over a couple of yards, fiddle around for a couple of seconds and I can start shooting again. Very good, Ian. We'll probably talk about DSLRs in another episode. Now, yep. Ian, what have you got for Ian's tangent this week? Well, actually, before I go on the tangent, I want to tell you about something else that's quite important on the 17th. Okay. It's a number of eclipse of the moon. It's going to happen around about 2 o'clock in the morning. Yep. In fact, the eclipse starts around about 2.30 uh, for us in central Australia. For the east coast, it's about 3. 
Perth's got a really good view, but it starts about uh, 1 o'clock in the morning there. A penumbral eclipse isn't quite as exciting as a partial or total eclipse because with a penumbral eclipse, you're passing through the outermost part of Earth's shadow. So unlike a, a solar eclipse where the moon passes in front of the sun, in a eclipse of the moon, the moon passes through Earth's shadow. And Earth's shadow is not a sort of single thing. You have inner shadow, very dark, and then you have an outer part of the shadow, which is much less dark. This time round, the moon's passing through the deepest part of the penumbral shadow, so it's a quite dark penumbral eclipse, and you'll see a definite darkening of the moon. Okay, and what's your tangent for this week? My tangent comes from the fact that the OSIRIS-REx mission blasted off and it's headed off for the asteroid Bennu. Bennu is named for one of the mythological characters of Egypt. It's named after a stork because the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft reminded the young person who put in the competition to name yep. of a stork. So we've got so many asteroids you can't possibly name them all. But I'd like you to think that Yes. And there are seven asteroids that are named after either creators of actors in or characters from Star Trek. Very good. So there is also an asteroid named Mr. Spock. Very good, Ian. But I'd like to point out that the asteroid named Mr. Spock was actually named for the proposer's cat, who was named after the character from Star Trek. Well, that was a great tangent, Ian, because one of our major news items this week is all about the launch and trajectory and the science that is involved with Osiris-Rex. As a tangent to the tangent, I was also involved in the amateur groups who were observing asteroids in support of the Osiris-Rex mission. Excellent, and we'll look forward to hearing a report on your asteroid hunt. Thank you very much, Ian Musgrave from Astroblogger. It's been a pleasure, Brendan. We will see you next week. Until then, clear skies and good observations. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Ian. I can't recommend highly enough that you go to Google and find Ian's Astroblog. Just Google Astroblogger. It's a wonderful blog and it's very up-to-date and it's got all the latest news and wonderful links. Here is the Astrophys News for Wednesday 14th September 2016. Our first story is a big story this week from the European Space Agency, ESA.int. The 100kg Philae spacecraft missing since 2014 has finally been found in a crevice on comet churimov gerasimenko Philae and its 3-tonne mothership was launched into space on a 777-tonne Ariane rocket in 2014. It got a gravity assist from Mars and Mark Watney, three gravity assists from Earth and Isaac Newton, then had a rendezvous with comet churimov gerasimenko 10 years later in 2014. The landing on Comet 67P Cherenyumov Gerasimenko did not go as planned. The one metre tall spacecraft was released from its three ton mothership Rosetta, descended to the comet, then bounced off and flew for two hours, then touched down again out of sight of a mothership, and the Philae lander lost touch with the ESA agency three days later when its primary battery died and it went into hibernation. 
Blanda briefly awoke in June 2015 and again in July, but hadn't been heard from since. Its location had been unknown. The Lander is named after the Philae obelisk, which bears a bilingual inscription and was used along with the Rosetta Stone to decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Philae is monitored and operated from DLR's Landing Control Centre in Cologne in Germany. DLR is a German aerospace centre. Now, less than a month before the end of the mission, Rosetta's high-res camera has revealed the Philae lander is wedged into a dark crack on Comet 67P Cheryumov-Gerasimenko, and the revealing images were taken on the 2nd of September by Rosetta's narrow-angle camera as the orbiter came within 2.7 kilometres of the surface. The images also provide proof of Philae's orientation, making it clear why establishing communications was so difficult following its land on the 12th of November 2014. At the end of this month, the orbiter will be sent on a final one-way mission to land and investigate the comet from close-up, including the open pits of the Ma'at region, where it is hoped that critical observations will help to reveal secrets of a body's interior structure. We'll look forward in two weeks to, for more data from Rosetta. Well done, ESA. You may ask why I've gone to the trouble of pronouncing Comet 67P Cheryumov gerasimenko correctly, it's because I got some coaching from Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov, and also it's a sign of respect to pronounce people's names correctly. We also have a diversity policy here at Astrophys. Look it up on our website. This next huge story is adapted from NASA and asteroidmission.org. NASA's first asteroid sampling mission launched into space last Thursday from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida, beginning a journey that could revolutionise our understanding of the early solar system. The OSIRIS-REx mission seeks answers to questions that are central to the human experience. Where did we come from? What is our destiny? OSIRIS-REx is going to Bennu, a carbon-rich asteroid that records the earliest history of our solar system and will be bringing a piece of it back to Earth. Bennu may contain the molecular precursors to the origin of life and the Earth's oceans. Bennu is also one of the most potentially hazardous asteroids and has a relatively high probability of impacting the Earth late in the 22nd century. Wait for it. Osiris Rex will determine Bennu's physical and chemical properties, which will be critical for future scientists to know when developing an impact mitigation mission. So last Thursday's flawless launch was aboard an Atlas V rocket using a Russian-built RD-180 engine burning kerosene and liquid oxygen to power its first stage, and an American-built RI-10 engine burning liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen to power its Centaur upper stage. The Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer Osiris Rex 
Spacecraft is designed to rendezvous with, study and return a sample of the asteroid Bennu to Earth. Asteroids like Bennu are remnants from the formation of our solar system more than 4.5 billion years ago. Scientists expect that asteroids may have been a source of the water and organic molecules for the early Earth and other planetary bodies. An uncontaminated asteroid sample from a known source would enable precise analyses providing results far beyond what can be achieved by spacecraft-based instruments or by studying meteorites. OSIRIS-REx separated from its United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket last Thursday and the solar arrays deployed and are now powering the spacecraft. After a year orbiting the Sun, OSIRIS-REx will make a flyby of Earth and Earth's gravitational field will pull the spacecraft towards the planet where it can borrow a small amount of Earth's orbital energy. This is what we call a gravity assist. This additional energy is used to increase OSIRIS-REx's orbital inclination and sling it back into space for a rendezvous with Bennu. The survey of Bennu begins in October 2018 and will last for nearly a year. It includes four major phases. A preliminary survey, which searches for asteroid plumes, natural satellites, and measures the acceleration of Bennu. Orbital A survey allows the flight dynamics team to transition from star-based navigation to landmark-based navigation using images of Bennu's surface. In a detailed survey, several instruments work together to map Bennu and determine its global spectral, thermal and geological properties. Orbital B continues to map Bennu at higher resolutions with a focus on candidate sample sites. At the end of Orbital B, a sample site will be selected. Then, in 2020, the spacecraft will perform a daring manoeuvre in which its 11-foot arm will reach out and perform a five-second high-five to stir up surface material, collecting at least two ounces or 60 grams of small rocks and dust in a sample return container. OSIRIS-REx will return that sample to Earth in September 2023, when it will then be transported to NASA's John Space Center in Houston for examination. The OSIRIS-REx camera suite consists of three cameras, Polycam, Mapcam and SAMCAM. These cameras will see asteroid Bennu as the spacecraft first approaches it. Finally, the cameras will record the entire sampling event during the touch-and-go maneuver. That's called a tag maneuver. The student experiment Regolith X-ray Imaging Spectrometer, REXIS, will determine which elements are present and how abundant they are on the surface of Bennu. This capability will complement the onboard mineral mapping provided by other instruments. REXIS takes advantage of the fact that solar X-rays and the solar wind interact with the regolith on Bennu's surface. The touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism, TAG-SAM, is an elegantly simple sampler head with an articulated arm. 
Once the sampler head makes contact with the surface of Bennu, a burst of pure nitrogen gas will push surface regolith into the sampler's chamber. Surface contact pads on the exterior of TAGSAM will also connect fine-grained material as the sample collector touches down on the asteroid. TAGSAM has three separate bottles of gas, which allows up to three sampling attempts. Although TAGSAM is a new technology, vacuum and micro-G tests of the sampler head have proven its ability to collect more than required 60 grams of sample. This is a very exciting space-borne experiment, and we'll follow it with great interest here at Astrophys. Our next story is from dailygalaxy.com via NASA and Mark Kaufman. Evidence Planet 9 may already exist. Normally we ignore conjecture, but this conjecture gets two ticks. Firstly, it's from the Carnegie Institute. You might remember Vera Rubin and Edwin Hubble were both Nobel laureates that came from the Carnegie Institute. Secondly, Julie Banfield from Radio Galaxy Zoo in Episode 9 told us that 90% of the data that we collect will not be seen by the human eye. Actually, it's quite possible that the planet has already been in some way imaged, says Scott Shepard of the Carnegie Institute. That happened with Uranus, Neptune and Pluto. They were observed but not understood before they were actually detected and identified. Proof of Planet 9 or Planet X may already exist in some observatory somewhere. Scott Shepard's team has been searching for proof of Planet 9 using the dark energy camera on the 4-metre Blanco telescope at the Cerro Toledo Inter-American Observatory in the southern Atacama region of Chile. They have also collected data on distant solar system objects with the Japanese Sapayam camera on the 8-metre Subaru telescope in Hawaii. Shepard's team is considering an alternative theory that involves a planet 9 exoplanet that has been kicked out of another nearby solar system that formed in the general vicinity of ours. Such things are known to happen. If this turned out to be the case, then we know that there were other suns being formed nearby our sun, Shepard said. It would have to be a very dense solar environment, and that would also tell us a lot about the formation of our solar system. Shepard's team is conducting the deepest survey so far for objects far beyond Neptune and the Kuiper Belt, a circumstellar disk that lies some 30 to 50 times as far as the Earth is from the Sun. It is filled with dwarf planets, asteroids, comets, and balls of frozen compounds, remnants of the earliest days of the evolution of the solar system. The Kuiper Belt is the region that includes Pluto, the now dwarf planet demoted with heated debate several years ago. He said that although astronomers believe there are thousands of these small objects, only about 15 have been positively identified. Other groups searching the trans-Neptunian region for planets and information about the early solar system include the Canadian Outer Solar System Origins Survey and the International Dark Energy Survey. 
Shepard said that while the teams searching for Planet Nine are definitely in competition, a discovery would, after all, rewrite the textbooks. They are also cooperating in terms of reporting back to each other if a region of the sky they study comes up with nothing to report. That way, he said, the teams won't duplicate efforts where there is no promise of reward. Well done. Our next story is about galactic evolution, adapted from phys.org by Brian Wallheimer. Using colours to identify the approximate ages of more than 130,000 stars in the Milky Way's halo, Notre Dame astronomers have produced the clearest picture yet of how the galaxy formed more than 13.5 billion years ago. Astrophysicist Daniela Carollo, research assistant professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Notre Dame, and Timothy Beers, Notre Dame Chair of Astrophysics, along with research assistant professor Vinicius Laco and their colleagues, published their findings in Nature Physics, including a chronographic, or the age map, that supports a hierarchical, or accumulation model of galaxy formation. That model, developed by theoreticians over the past few decades, suggests that the Milky Way formed by merging an accretion of small mini-halos containing stars and gas, and that the oldest of the Milky Way's stars are at the centre of the galaxy, and younger stars and galaxy merged with the Milky Way, drawn in by gravity over billions of years. What are halos, you ask? The galactic halo is an extended, roughly spherical component of a galaxy which extends beyond the main visible component. Three distinct components comprise the galactic halo. The galactic spheroid of thinly distributed stars, the galactic corona, hot gas, that is plasmas, and dark matter halo. Using data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, in which Notre Dame is a partner, the scientists identified more than 130,000 blue horizontal branch stars, which burn helium in their cores, and exhibit different colours based on their ages. They are the only type of star whose age can be estimated by colour alone. The technique they employed is one that Beers helped develop about 25 years ago, when he was still a postdoctoral fellow. Their detailed age map shows how the Milky Way came together. Their animation can be found at tinyurlcom forward slash astrophysmilky and it clearly shows older stars at the centre of our galaxy supporting this theory of the Milky Way's evolution. Now, this is a beautiful segue into our next story, compiled from a press release from the ESA and spacetelescope.org, and a news report for Cosmos magazine by Belinda Smith. Milky Way stellar fossil discovered. Some 19,000 light years from Earth is Terzan 5, a globular cluster with two stellar growth spurts billions of years apart, has been found in the galactic bulge. A fossilised remnant of the early Milky Way harbouring stars of hugely different ages has been revealed by an international team of astronomers. This stellar system resembles a globular cluster, but is like no other cluster known. It contains stars remarkably similar to the most ancient stars in the Milky Way and bridges the gap in understanding between our galaxy's past and its present. Terzan 5 has been classified as a globular cluster for the 40-odd years since its detection. Now, an Italian team of astronomers has discovered that 
Terzin 5 is like no other globular cluster known. This is an echo of a remark by Dr. Julie Banfield in Episode 9. The team scoured data from the Advanced Camera for Surveys and the Wide Field Camera 3 on board Hubble, as well as from a suite of other ground-based telescopes, ground-based telescopes. They found compelling evidence that there are two distinct kinds of stars in Terzin 5, which not only differ in the elements they contain, but have an age gap of roughly 7 billion years. The ages of the two populations indicate that the star formation process in Terzan 5 was not continuous, but was dominated by two distinct bursts of star formation. This requires the Terzan 5 ancestor to have large enough amounts of gas for a second generation of stars and to be quite massive, at least 100 million times the mass of the Sun, explains David Massari, co-author of the study. Current theories on galaxy formation assume that vast clumps of gas and stars interacted to form the primordial bulge of the Milky Way, merging and dissolving in the process. We think that some remnants of these gaseous clumps could remain relatively undisrupted and keep existing embedded within the galaxy, explains Francesco Ferraro from the University of Bologna in Italy and lead author of the study. Such galactic fossils allow astronomers to reconstruct an important piece of the history of our Milky Way. While the properties of Terzan 5 are uncommon for a globular cluster, they are very similar to the stellar population which can be found in our galactic bulge, the tightly packed central region of the Milky Way. These similarities could make Terzan 5 a fossilised relic of galaxy formation, representing one of the earliest building blocks of the Milky Way. The Terzan 5 study will have enormous ramifications for our understanding of how galaxies form. Brilliant detective work and a lovely example of how theory and practice are merged in modern astronomy. That was the Astrophys News. See you next week. Radio Wave!